If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel according to John, John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and I'm going to read starting in verse 4 to the end of that paragraph in verse 15. This scripture was chosen in this final and last message of this sermon series, a sermon teaching series that's been a bridge between book studies, Embassy Church's commitment regarding our diet for how to worship together has been a diet that's been centered around the Word of God. And that's not an apology, it's just a statement of value and conviction that we would like to be a church that's centered around God's Word. And I think today's passage will only give further evidence or reasons for why that would be such a wise thing for a church to do. So in order to keep ourselves committed to the Word of God, uh, we not only read scripture like Isaiah, I mean uh, like Xavier came up and just a second ago read for us a scripture reading, we're commanded in God's Word to commit ourselves to the reading of scripture. But we're also commanded in scripture as Christians to preach the gospel and the Word of God in season, out of season, regularly preaching and teaching God's Word. And so instead of me trying to think through what would be a helpful tidbit of life lessons from the Bible, we pick books of the Bible. And we go through those books as long as it may take to work through them. And most recently, we went through the gospel according to Matthew, and it took over, oh, three years. And so we spent a long time working through Matthew's gospel. And then the Bridge series has been this current one, just a short teaching series from Easter to Pentecost Sunday on what's the gospel? What is it that the Bible says, especially in several different New Testament passages, about the central message of Jesus? And so what we've been doing is looking at the gospel broadly and then the ascension of Christ specifically, more narrowly, in part because I believe it's one of the things I've observed over the last several years has been that the gospel of Jesus is about Jesus, but oftentimes when we get to maybe, say, his resurrection and ascension and then the outpouring of the Spirit, these events get kind of left off to the side. They don't often get mentioned when we present the gospel in evangelism. And so I've tried to say, hey, let's try and use seven links of events that have happened or seven theological truths to have a more robust summary of the gospel. Those seven links are, number one, God the Father has made a plan from eternity past. Number two, that plan involves that God would become human. So the second person of the triune God was born through a virgin. He lived a perfect life, and then he taught us the way to be human. Third, that human, Jesus, died on a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Fourth, Jesus was buried, and as his body was buried into the grave, his soul descended to the place of the dead. Fifth, Jesus' soul and body were resurrected, reunited, and he lived on the earth again. And as Xavier just read for us in John 20, that's not the end of the story. As Mary was clinging on to him, he said, I'm not done yet. I need to ascend to the Father. And so, number six, Jesus ascends to heaven as Lord 
who will come and judge the living and the dead. But as he ascends into heaven, the gift he pours out as victor over all of the battles of darkness and the forces of evil, he pours out his spirit upon his church. All those who would put their trust in him, repent of their sins, and believe upon this gospel good news, they would receive this presence of God the Father and the Son and the Spirit within them. And those are the seven things. So again, quickly, the Father made a plan. That plan is Jesus coming to the earth, living a perfect life, dying in our place, being buried, descending to the dead, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and pouring out the Spirit. That's what I've been trying to argue, and in this last and final message, what I want us to do is see the link between number six and seven, that Jesus' ascension into heaven is necessary because it is the only means by which the Spirit would be poured out. And because that is such incredibly good news for us, we want to consider this in John chapter 16. So I'm going to read the text, but before I do, let me just make a couple comments. First, John 16 is in a long conversation Jesus is having on the night that he would be betrayed and die. So this is like his final words to his disciples as they're having a Passover meal that would become the first Lord's Supper. The sort of things Jesus has been talking about from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 are that you're going to have some troubles in this world The world is going to hate you. You're going to be persecuted for being my followers. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to be an assistant, to to be a helper. And then Jesus then makes it plain to them. He's going to die, and then he will depart. Die and depart after his resurrection. But he promises that he will return. He's having these conversations with his disciples, preparing them for what is about to happen. So let's dive in to one section of this and notice the emphasis on his departure in our text. He's going to die, depart, and that that is really good. Verse 5 of chapter 16. It's really the end of verse 4, but here it is. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment." Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. J.D. Greer is a pastor in North Carolina, and in a book that he wrote on the Holy Spirit, he summarizes our big idea in a very helpful little way. He says, the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus 
beside you. So one simple, pithy statement to remember from this message to conclude this teaching series on the significance of Jesus' ascension in the gospel and the outpouring of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than having Jesus besides you, beside you, next to you. This is clearly coming from verse 7, if you can see right down in your Bibles, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. To your advantage. The word means something that is profitable. It's the word used when Jesus says, It is better for you to lose one eye and go to heaven than to have both eyes fully working and go to hell. Or when he tells his disciples, it is better to have a giant boulder, a rock, tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean and drowned. That would be better than to cause one of my followers to stumble in sin. Both of those teachings of Jesus are hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point. Sin is serious. Causing other people to sin is serious. And so he uses this word, it would be better. And in this way, he says, it would be better, an advantage for me to leave you and send the helper than for me to stay and the helper not come. That's the comparison that's being made. Now, let's just acknowledge this is not instinctively, intuitively clear. One author in a book on the Ascension, Tim Chester, writes, Now, let's be honest. Wouldn't evangelism be a whole lot easier if Jesus was still on the earth? Imagine if he was still living in Israel or somewhere on the earth and that people could go up to him and see him right now. Imagine if scientists could study him over the years and verify this man is actually 2,000 years old. Or imagine... That Jesus himself went on a tour of not just the Middle East, but the whole world. And he performed miracles and he preached the good news about what his death accomplished. In other words, the ascension of Christ, it seems like on the surface, like it's a bad strategy. It seems like it's removing for us the key piece of evidence that substantiates the claims of the Christian faith. And then he concludes this way by saying, It's like saying you're about to play the championship game. And right as the game begins, the coach takes out the best player. The best player by far. Just as you're getting started to try and win it all. Is that what it sounds like when I say the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than having Jesus sitting right next to you right now? I think one of the reasons why this is not included in our normal presentations of the gospel is perhaps we don't believe John 16, verse 7. We don't preach it because, honestly, we don't believe it. If we could have the choice between depending on something that's right in front of you and visible and concrete versus something that's invisible and a bit abstract, 100 times out of 100, you and I are going to pick the concrete, visible thing. We have been conditioned to believe that what is really true is what you can see, what's right in front of you. If you can't see it, well, then you should be highly skeptical. Do you realize that this is a hard truth for us modernists 
Western enlightened people to swallow. It's hard. It's not hard for other people that have a world that is made up of thinking about the truth and the reality of spiritual things, invisible things. I think I've shared this once before, but just in case and just to refresh our memories, when I was traveling to Southeast Asia and visiting some some missionary workers over in that area, the first thing I noticed was it was really hot and that people were wearing jackets when it was really hot. So imagine going outside today and being like, hey, what do I need right now? Oh, you know, some pants and a a nice jacket. You're, You're thinking, no, you're crazy. Well, why would you be wearing a jacket? But then it wasn't just that they were wearing jackets. It's that they were wearing them backwards. Literally, like the, back it, the, the jacket was unzipped and it would be on backwards and then they're riding on these motorcycles all around and I immediately was just like asking our, our guide with us who was living there, been there sometime, what's the deal with the jackets? It's hot. Like don't people realize, like are they just so used to the heat? Are they cold? And then why are they backwards? The answer I heard was not what I was expecting. And the answer was, well, they believe in a spirit that when they're driving around, that spirit could get inside of them and make them sick. In fact, this guy started to explain he had a friend that got sick and the doctor wasn't treating him for his actual illness and giving him an antibiotic. He said, you have that spirit because you weren't wearing the jacket. That's a doctor that's giving advice that's saying, look, I have such a concept of truth and reality and what's making sense of the world by this understanding of this spirit that he's giving medical advice that way and this friend demanded no I I actually know what I need I need this medicine and he wouldn't leave until he got it and thankfully he got it and lived but he was like on death's door kind of sick and had a disease that that sort of moment made me realize they have a different understanding of the world Somebody in that sort of concept, the fancy word would be cosmology of the world, that understanding of the world, they hear things like this and they're like, oh, I could see what Jesus is getting at. But you and I, we need to just admit right from the start, the big idea of this message, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's invisible. It's abstract. You probably heard that story just now and thought, Yeah, that's what's wrong with the other parts of the world. They don't know truth like we know truth. It's a hard truth for us, but it's always been a hard truth in many ways to swallow this concept that it's better for Jesus to leave. Our text makes it very clear, doesn't it? In verse 5, Jesus says, I'm going to him who sent me, and, and none of you are asking where are you going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow has filled their heart. Why has sorrow filled the hearts of Jesus' disciples as he's having the last meal with them? Well, because he said what things? You're going to be hated. Many of you are going to die. The world's going to persecute you. I'm about to die. And so they're hearing these things about suffering and sorrow fills their heart. And then to add insult to injury, Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to leave you when all this happens. Anybody want to think, I'm understanding why they're so filled with sorrow. In the same way that you and I look at the sufferings in our world, the persecution of the world hating us, we get distracted from the big picture of the whole story. 
And like those disciples, none of us are asking, where's Jesus going? Or in our case, where is Jesus right now? In other words, take this this piece of paper here. These are your sufferings. They're real. They exist. They're just not the whole story. But when they're like this, right in front of your face, there's very little you can see. And what Jesus is doing by pointing out, none of you seem interested to talk about where I'm going to go. All you care about right now is being swallowed up by the suffering that I've just talked about. That's true. It's real. You need to think about it. But you need to see it as a part of the whole big picture. That's not the end of the story. In fact, Jesus, as we've been trying to say in this sermon series, is saying, my suffering, as real and as painful and as difficult as it is, is actually the means by which God will vindicate me, exalt me, and allow me entrance into the heavens as a human being. It's not just a part of the story. It is part of the climactic crescendo of what Jesus came to do. So has sorrow filled your heart, friends? Is it so in front of your face that you're like these disciples and you could care less about the ascension of Jesus that he's reigning at the right hand? That when Paul says in Colossians 3.1, keep your eyes fixed on things above, namely Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. Read Colossians 3.1 and 2. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Are your eyes just on what's right in front of you, what you can see and feel? Is it clouding your vision? The disciples are concentrating on the wrong subject. No one is asking about, hey, tell us more about this ascension thing. Tell us about where you're going and and how you're getting there and why that matters and why that will make all the difference for us. Jesus says that I have a V-shaped journey from heaven to earth, down to the pit of the earth, and back up to heaven again. And dying and suffering and humiliation is the means to exaltation. And just like that will be my path, you can put your hope in knowing that whatever you suffer and are persecuted by, that will be your path as well. So brothers and sisters, I encourage us with this big idea by saying the Holy Spirit pressing into your heart that there is a bigger story going on is vitally good news. Pulling back and being able to see through the power of the Spirit the bigger picture of your pains and your sufferings and that there is something more going on that God has promised in Jesus Christ. Namely, there's something better than just what's right in front of you. Something that you can't even see. This is good news. This is necessary for us to do life together in this world that we're living in. And so, who, not a what, who is this helper? Verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And notice the clause here, for, because if I don't go away, then the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, then I will send him to you. Him, not it, not a force, not an invisible force that's just kind of out there, light side, dark side. We're not talking Star Wars. We're talking the personal presence of the divine God, the creator of the universe, being given to you and becoming a part of you. And he is called here the helper. The helper might be helpful, 
but maybe it's not. Other translations use the translation counselor, that he's going to counsel you. But too often, some scholars will say, well, is counselor actually the best word to use? In modern days, it's going to make you think about lying on a couch and talking to a psychologist and, and thinking about a counseling session. Is, is that really what Jesus is saying here with this word? Another translation is comforter. But that's old English. That was older translations because the word comfort had some oomph to it about providing something strong and sturdy and not just soft. Too many people have said counselors sort of right, comforters kind of getting part of it, but it depends on what you mean by comfort. Another translation is, is advocate, like a defense attorney. Somebody who is standing in your defense, representing you, that's also communicated by this word. The Greek word, by the way, is paraclete. And one of the funniest things is that when sometimes these translation problems are happening and people feel like, ah, let's just say the Greek word. So you'll read all kinds of books about this passage and it'll say, the paraclete. But but what is that? Is that helpful? that helpful? And I know for me, seeing the translation that we have in front of us, helper, for better or for worse, what really it stuck into my mind was a a little comedy sketch from Tim Hawkins, a Christian comedian. He has a little short clip. You can look it up on YouTube. Christian comedian, he's clean. I I think you won't be too offended. But he, he talks about how when he got married, he said, guys, I love marriage. Marriage is awesome because I learned There are so many benefits when you get married. You may not realize this, any of you who are single or engaged and you've not been married yet, but when you get married, you get a a helper in the car. And so then Tim Hawkins, in an overly sarcastic tone, says, Oh, I love my little helper. She helps me know everything about how to drive. It's so convenient for me. He then says, Sometimes I get confused. I don't know where I would go or what I would do without this helper in the car. Maybe I'd be bouncing off of trees and running into buildings, but thankfully she's there to help me. She'll even tell me when the light changes colors and everything. It's so helpful. She'll say, honey, it's green. Oh, thank you. I was confused. I didn't know. Captain Prism to the rescue. She's so helpful. I sometimes don't know how fast I'm driving, but I've got a little helper in the car. She says, honey, do you know how fast you're going? And I say, I have a speedometer right in front of me. Yes, I'm well aware, but thanks to you, I have a backup. If the speedometer ever breaks in half, I've got a little helper in the car. Now, not only is that an unhelpful image, little helper, when you read the ESV, and I'm just confessing that that was one of the images, but... I share this little Tim Hawkins story because he said this line, and I actually think it helps illustrate what this whole Holy Spirit thing is about. At the end of this little bit, he says, now when you see an old man driving down the speedway, highway, interstate, and he's doing 35 miles an hour, I want you to realize it's not because he wants to drive slow, it's because he's been trained to. His foot wants to press the pedal harder, but he's been governed by his little helper for so many years. 
And at that moment, I thought, actually, he's onto something, isn't he? Not like the Holy Spirit's our little helper, but rather, it is better to have the Spirit of God inside of you than Jesus beside you, because you can have the very truth about God and the world governing you so that at the end of your life, you'll be like an old man that's been well-trained, but not by, for better or for worse, a wife, well-trained by God himself. That your whole being is being governed by his definition of sin and righteousness and judgment. Imagine being one of those first disciples and hearing that Jesus says, I'm going to die soon. I will rise again. I will ascend into heaven. And you're going to suffer a lot for being one of my followers. But do not worry. I'm going to send the paraclete a helper. And that helper is not going to teach you how to drive slow or this or that. This helper is going to govern your thoughts about the world and align them with God's thoughts about the world. I thought of it like this, using Tim Hawkins' kind of illustration. Would you rather have a printed map beside you, or would you like to know the roads that you're driving on so well that it's as if you have a GPS system built into your very body? Jesus beside you is like a printed map. He's going to tell you the way to go. He's going to show you the V-shaped journey. He's going to tell you this is the way to live as a human. But without the change of the Spirit in your life, it's just an example for us instead of a transformation in us. And in many ways, that's one of the highlighted differences of the Spirit. You could have Jesus beside you or you could have God himself within you. And Jesus declares emphatically, this, friends, is better. This is what it means for Jesus to be ascending into heaven and leaving us with an amazing, precious gift. Look at the text again, starting in verse 7. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he explains what he means. He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. I have so many more things I want to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak And he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I want to finish out this message by explaining that there are three reasons at least why it is better to have the Spirit inside you than Jesus beside you. Just, I want to argue with it. I'm I'm assuming that you have rationalistic difficulties to really believe this. And so I just want to try and really hammer this in. And we're dependent now that the Spirit actually does this work. So I can give my best arguments from this text. But here they are. Three reasons why Jesus inside you through the Spirit of God is better than him beside you. Number one, 
because the Spirit will convict the world. Number two, because the Spirit will guide us into the truth. Number three, because the Spirit will glorify the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's just think about each of these briefly. I know we're already like well on halfway through this message. These are your concluding thoughts. Number one, the Spirit of God will convict the world. This word for convicting the world is debated, and some would say that it's about like conviction regarding, oh, I feel guilty. There's that connotation, but there's also conviction as in positively being like, oh, that's the right way to do it. I don't necessarily know if we need to debate too much about either of those. I think in a lot of ways, when you feel guilty and you realize you've sinned, it's like, because I did the wrong thing and I thought the wrong way. So instead of trying to pick and choose, let's kind of think about both of those things, both the private and the public aspect of this. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit will show us that we were wrong. Not just us, but it says the world is now going to know what is true and what is right and what is wrong. When the Spirit comes inside of human beings, those human beings will display the appropriate and the correct manner of living life on this world. They will be little examples of Jesus himself in a way that Jesus, by himself, one human could never do by himself. Therefore, the church, as he says in other places in this same speech, the church through the Spirit will do greater things than Jesus could by himself. Spirit-filled communities of Christians should, through their display of Christ-like community, as little Jesuses connected to him, hold the world accountable to what's right and wrong, convicting and convincing them about, first, sin. The Spirit convicts us of our sin because they don't believe in me. In other words, the world does not like the way that Jesus does life. That's why there will be persecution. Jesus reveals on his full testimony of the way he lived his life and the teachings that he taught and let's say the Sermon on the Mount. That's how to be a human being. Don't repay evil for evil. If someone slaps you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. Don't just not commit adultery. Don't look at woman with lust in your heart. Don't try and be this righteous person so you can be seen by men, but rather give and not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's the way Jesus says to be a human, and he did that. He displayed that, and therefore he convicted those around him of like, mm, that's it's like coming at odds with the way we live. And so there's conflict. When Jesus lives on this earth, he says, this is true humanity. Therefore, when spirit-filled Christians are on the earth, they're showing in part what it means to be a Jesus follower and what it means to really live in this world. And that does not play nicely with people that are in opposition to the ways of Jesus. And the Spirit then is telling and convicting us about our sin personally, but then even publicly, corporately, as the world sees the church and says, they think that's sin? And the church says, yes, we think that is sin. We're going to hold each other accountable to that. And because of that, the world will not like that. Another way to say it is the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal to you and me that we are sinning because we have failed to see and believe all that God has provided for us in Jesus. Sin is not just, well, you did the wrong thing. You did the wrong thing because you didn't trust in God 
Do you see that? Concerning sin, the Spirit will show you not just that you sinned, but that your sin is intimately tied to your understanding of Jesus, your belief, your trust, your hope in the gospel. Friends, I hope that that did not just go over deaf ears. Counseling in this church should be rooted in applying that thing that I just said daily to our own counsel as we talk to ourselves and to one another. We don't just sin because we did the wrong thing. We sin because we have a failure to believe all that God has provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We fail to trust the promises of God. And we need an entire lifetime to work that out week after week as a community together. The Spirit is the one that does that. And when we live that way, the world is going to feel guilty. And they're going to be corrected. Concerning sin, concerning righteousness. Notice that Jesus says that the Spirit comes and convicts the world about sin and righteousness. Or you could also translate this word justice. What's right? What's just? There's a lot of talk about that in these days. And it is only because of the Spirit of God that you and I cannot just know the right answer, but really believe it in our hearts and live it out in our, our being. Being governed like that old man on the side of the road that's going, just putting along. We're going to be governed by the righteousness of God through the Spirit. Could you imagine a group of people governed by the Spirit of God's perfect righteousness? The Spirit comes to tell the world, your way of doing righteousness is not adequate. How many times have we heard people say, the police need to be accountable these days? And so to keep them accountable, they're going to have more police fixing the police. Anybody ever look at that and be like, something's wrong with that equation? I mean, it's not just the police. That's just a modern example. You could say, politicians say we need checks and balances. So the politicians are going to be held accountable by the other millionaire politicians. Oh, hmm. Or the news media and the journalists say, no, no, we're the ones that are going to help keep everybody accountable. Right. Who's going to keep the media accountable to all of their biases and agendas? It's not hard to start looking at every system of authority and structure in government, whatever it is, and say, you know, they've not quite really figured out righteousness and justice. And Jesus says, it's better that I ascend to heaven because when the Spirit comes, he will show the world true justice, true righteousness from heaven it doesn't come from this world. It's otherworldly. That's why it is the Spirit of God at work. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, the ascension redefines righteousness. The ascension redefines your righteousness because your righteousness is not in your self-merits. It is in our advocate, our defense attorney, defending us before the Father at his right hand. Your righteousness, your standing before God is not because of your efforts and your good deeds. It is because of the achievement of Jesus Christ alone. It's a different kind of righteousness than the world's kind of righteousness. How many times do you hear from the world on the news, you know, if you really want to be a good person in this world, forsake every good thing you've ever done, count it dirty rags, and fall on your face before Jesus Christ. You only hear that from loudmouth preachers like me. Because it's only through the Spirit of God that we're going to look at Jesus as Lord, representing us, 
identifying with us. Our advocate because he's one of us as a human in heaven. In other words, the way that Jesus redefines righteousness is summed up in one simple concept, humility. The way up is actually down. And that's what we've seen throughout this series. The world does not think about righteousness this way and the spirit wants to govern you for the rest of your life to think about humility as the most excellent virtue in all of life. Concerning judgment, that the world is be convicted about the true judge that is seated on the throne that has defeated the power and the prince of this world, Satan himself. And when you look up into the heavens and you see that Jesus is there on the throne and you believe by faith that the word is true, then you're going to know when you see darkness in this world. You're going to be convicted. Yes, darkness does not win. The light of the gospel reigns, not Satan. That's all conviction. You should believe that the ascension of Christ pours out the Spirit of God, and that's better because it brings all kinds of conviction of truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. Secondly, you should know that the Spirit being poured out on us is good news and better for us because we'll be guided to the truth. This is what verse 12 and 13 says explicitly. I've got all kinds of things I want to tell you, disciples, but you can't bear them now. Why can't they bear them now? They don't have the Spirit of God to bear the weight of all that God's going to share through His Spirit. I think in many ways when he's saying that you're not going to speak on your own authority, nor is the Spirit Himself, you're just going to hear what you hear from the Father giving the message through the Son to the Spirit, to the church, declaring things that are to come. This is like the book of Revelation. They they can't bear that message right now, but the Spirit's going to come, and God's Spirit's going to inspire the New Testament authors to write the rest of the New Testament. And you will be able to speak and share what the Spirit shares with you. The Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you because it will give us further clarity of revelation and put that word on our heart, and therefore we will be guided to the truth of God's word. Didn't I say earlier, one of the evidences of the Spirit, you'll know the Spirit's at work because it's leading you to truth. Third and finally, you'll know that the Spirit's at work and you will realize that it is better for the Spirit to come and Jesus to ascend because the Spirit's job is to bring glory to Jesus. You see that in verse 14, he will glorify me It's going to shine light on me. I used to live in D.C., right downtown. I like to run, and I would run around the Washington Mall a lot. And so I'm walking and running up and down the monuments. And the middle monument is the big pencil-looking monument, as we used to call it as kids. There's the big white pencil. It's the Washington Monument. First president of the United States. Sticks out. It's the highest peak of the whole city. Every building has to be made so low so that no matter where you're at in the city, you can see the Washington Monument. True fact. Nobody ever talks about the spotlights. At nighttime, there's these giant, massive lights. They're shining, spotlighting the Washington Monument so that way at any point, wherever you're at in the city, at night, you can see the Washington Monument at the center of the the city. Why doesn't anybody talk about the spotlights? Because their job is to point your attention to the monument. That is the Spirit in a nutshell. The Holy Spirit should not 
be, evidence of the Spirit should not be seen in people talking a lot about the Spirit. Evidence of the Spirit at work, bearing good fruit, is when people talk about the Bible and Jesus and the gospel. You know you're a part of a Spirit-filled community of Christians when they just can't get enough of Jesus. It would be strange, right, if I'm taking you through a tour of D.C. and showing you around hometown and telling you what things were like and then be like, hey, check out these spotlights. Let's just stare at them for a long time. Let's talk about them. Let me tell you about the wattage. And be like, wait, can you tell me why there's two different colors of stone on the monument? No, no, don't talk about the monument, the spotlight. That'd be strange, wouldn't it? That's a lot of Christians these days. It's strange. It's strange that the role of the Spirit's primary job is to testify and point to Jesus through his words that he speaks. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the shy member of the Trinity. Shy as in he just wants to give Jesus all of the glory. Keep pointing the attention to the Son. You could overdo that statement, by the way. I'm just trying to overcorrect in these statements sometimes a very neglected thought that spirit-filled means talking a lot about the spirit when it seems like it's the exact opposite. You will know a spirit-filled church and community by their fruit, and their fruit will be loving Jesus because that's what the spirit wants you to be thinking about. So at Embassy Church, we want you to hear a lot about the gospel. We want our church to be founded on the gospel, and we want the Spirit of God to be working through the preaching of the gospel, and that's in big part why we did this short little series on the gospel. One pastor once said that if the Holy Spirit was taken away from many churches today, 95% of what would happen would still go on, and nobody would know the difference. But when you read the book of Acts, if the Holy Spirit was taken away from that church, I would guess 95% of what they did would stop immediately and everybody would know the difference. Is that your understanding of the church and the spirit? But the reason that we don't get sick and tired of hearing about the gospel is because the spirit is at work pointing you to the truth and realizing he is redefining for me what it means to be a human and he is everything. So I hope and pray that Embassy Church will want to hear a lot about Jesus and never come up and be like, but wait, when are we going to talk more about the stuff the Spirit does? We can talk about those things. There's lots of controversies about what the Bible teaches, but we should never move on from Jesus because that's what the Spirit's doing, even when he's doing all his different gifts within the church. Building up the church in the gospel is the point of the gifts, not to make you look great and say, hey, look at me, I'm Spirit-filled. So to summarize, the gospel that the Spirit wants to illuminate and shine a light on is that the Father in heaven made a plan that involved the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to be born as a virgin, in a a virgin, live a perfect life, die a death in our place, be buried, descend to the dead, be risen from the grave, ascend into heaven, as our Lord and King and ruler who judges the living and the dead. And by his ascension, this departure is good news because it poured out the Holy Spirit on each of us who would repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to come now in the name of your son Jesus, and we want to thank you 
today, on this Pentecost Sunday, we want to thank you for the Spirit. We want to thank you for this amazing gift of your personal near presence to us. We want to pray for each of us here that we would love Christ and that it would be evident that the Spirit is at work in this church because the love of Christ is growing wider and deeper, longer and higher. So we want to pray that you would unleash upon us the power of your Spirit to convict us of our sin. I pray that there would be some of us here that have been in sins that we've not confessed, that's not been brought to the light, and the Spirit is pressing in on them. You're doing it the wrong way. There's a better way to live as a human. So get yourself around other Christians who can help you follow Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would be working in that way. I pray for the world around us, institutions of authority and power and all the evil and darkness that we hear about and see about, the public truth about what's right and what's wrong. And I pray that the church of Jesus Christ would be faithful to our calling and our commitment. And through that faithfulness, we would be declaring to the world through the power of the Spirit, here's real truth. Here's real justice and righteousness. Here's real racial reconciliation. And here's real care for the unborn and the weak and the needy. Here's really what it looks like to care for those who are depressed and struggling with suicide. Father, I pray that our church would be multiplying with fruits of love for people the way Jesus did. And we pray, God, that in your mighty power, lives would be saved from death, literal death. And ultimately, many lives would be saved from eternal death as we put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.